Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning. As the video just said, welcome to Awaken. My name is Kathy Solomon. I'm the director of Community Life. And as we begin our gatherings, we really like to become intentional with a call to worship as we all transition from um, outside the cold into this space that we have together. And um, I recognize that as everyone is coming into this space that we all have different faith traditions and backgrounds. Some of you may come from a holiness tradition an evangelical tradition, social justice. Um, There's many different traditions in the Christian faith, yet we all um, share a bond of um, focusing on our faith in Christ. So I have, as far as readings, something more traditional. The first is a collect. And in the Anglican Church, in the Book of Common Prayer, collects are... um, part of their normal liturgy, and they have five movements in a collect from naming the one who you're praying to, fleshing out that name with a little bit more detail, then naming your desire, fleshing out that desire even more, and then ending with, um, from the person that I learned this from, he said, with a song of praise, um, or a bird of praise. So I have a collect to read to begin our time together, and maybe you will notice the movements within it. This is a collect of the Incarnation from the Book of Common Prayer. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the incarnational life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Come. Well, welcome to you all. Uh, I don't know if I've introduced myself. I'm Micah. Uh, one of the pastors here at Awaken, and very glad that you're with us. Um, If you're new, uh, we're really glad you're here, and we'd love to know that you were. If you're looking for a community to connect with, uh, there are ways you can do that in the seat pockets in front of you or online on our homepage there. Fill out that card, and someone from our team will reach out and invite you to a beverage of your choice. Uh, You can get to know us. We can get to know you a little bit. Um, Also, if you call Awaken Home and you 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 have tithes or offerings, uh, there's a number of ways you can give, uh, but if you have those today, uh, those in the cards can go in the black boxes at each of the exits. Uh, Super grateful for those, for the gifts that they are. By the way, um, every now and again, we'd like to share some of the things that are happening. So we got a card. It's a little, I'm a little late in reading it, but it says, wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Uh, It says... Yes, so uh, uh, Easter's right around the corner, Micah. Uh, thank you. We appreciate your donations of new sheets and blankets for our residents at Mino Aski. This is at Aindai Young up on University Avenue. The computers, uh, this computes, this comp- completes, this completes their journey uh, home to have cozy bedding to crawl into at night. The gift cards will allow them to make their apartment more of a home. So again, and appreciate you 
um, sincerely the staff at Andai Young. So if you guys remember, we did a little drive for supplies and clothing and sheets and bedding for that um, organization, and that's you all in the world. So thank you. Appreciate that. Um, A couple things that are happening in the church. Number one, uh, guess who's coming to dinner is coming. As I mentioned last week, there are 16 homes that have offered uh, a dinner. So if you're interested in having a free meal and getting to know some folks at Awaken, that's coming up on the 25th of March. Uh, You can register online, and then you'll get more information about where you're going to dinner. You will not know who's going to dinner, because that's the whole point. Guess who's going to dinner. Guess who's coming to dinner. Um, But that is the 25th of March, so you can sign up for that. Um, We have something we're doing we've never done before coming on this spring. So many of you know we do a garden outside, and the proceeds from that garden go to uh, local food shelves in the the neighborhood. Um, We're we're connecting like our spring cleanup and our garden startup with Earth Day, which is April 22nd. And it is a West 7th kind of neighborhood cleanup day the city is is sort of doing. So we thought, what better to do uh, than an old-fashioned pancake breakfast? Do you guys, did you ever go to a pancake breakfast when you were younger, like at the local church or the school? Anybody ever go to one of those? Yeah, they're terrible. The coffee's bad, the pancakes aren't that good, and the sausage, like, who knows where that's coming from. But we're doing it, because, like, that's fun, you know? So we're doing a good old-fashioned pancake breakfast. We've invited the neighborhood uh, so there's going to be two seatings. We have 80 seats, 8.30 and 9.15. We need volunteers. We're like hosting this for the neighborhood. So if you want to volunteer to help make it happen, we'd be super grateful for that. But also if you just want to come and have, well, we actually have great coffee. It'll be Wildflyer coffee. Carly's here in the room, I think, over here. There we go, Carly from Wildflyer. So uh, that new coffee shop just opened on West 7th, by the way. So congratulations, Carly and, and the Wildflyer team. Very cool. Uh, so we're serving their coffee. It's going to be fantastic. And then after that, uh, you'll be invited to go out and uh, give in a section of the neighborhood to clean up. Uh, and we'll partner with the city and just make the neighborhood beautiful. So it'll be great. Invite you to be there. Uh, and last but not least, um, Easter is coming soon. So Easter weekend, Good Friday, 6.30, Tenebrae service, traditional Tenebrae liturgy for that. Uh, and then Easter Sunday morning, 9.30 and 11. We're doing baptisms. We got some people being baptized on Easter Sunday, friends, so it's going to be great. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Mark chapter 14. I invite you to turn there. This is the fourth week of Lent, so any of you who are, have taken Lent to give something up, if that's a difficult thing for you, as it has been for me, um, only two weeks left. We're rounding the corner to the end of Lent, and hopefully it's been a transformational journey for you. Uh, as it was for Jesus. We've been looking at the transformation of Jesus during Epiphany, right before Lent, and now during Lent. And so we've looked at um, the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. Uh, A couple weeks ago, um, Jesus in the the Passover meal that he has with his disciples, and then last week in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed, Lord, not uh, if there's any way, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours. And so today we find Jesus in uh, the home of the high priest of Israel for... uh, a situation that is brewing. So, um, Elle, I would invite you to come, and if you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the word, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53 and following. They took Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priests. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. 
Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Pray with me, if you would. God, we gather this morning around this story and this passage, and I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be um, pleasing to you, would be helpful and um, edifying to the church gathered. I pray in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. The church said together, Amen. You may be seated. So we are in the book of Mark. Uh, a couple of notes before a few observations I want to make about this passage. Um, a couple of weeks ago we talked about how Mark organizes his material, how he organizes his story. And one of the common things in Mark is a sandwich, where he takes uh, an idea, a, a person say, like in this, in this um, story, we have Peter. Peter begins the, the section and then ends the section, and there's something else in the middle and both of those things are kind of working with each other. So Peter is outside. He's warmed by the fire. Uh, he's gathered near, but not, he's close, but not inside the Sanhedrin, the, the high priest's house. And then at the end, Peter's unable to speak, unable to, to um, confirm that he is with Jesus, right? And in the middle, you find Jesus, who hasn't said anything yet about himself, but speaks as clearly as he does at any point in the Gospels about who he is in sort of the cold, excoriating uh, uh, setting of the high priest's house at night. So it's this sandwich, and these things are working with each other. Not unlike a couple of weeks ago, where the woman who anoints Jesus with, with oil at Bethany, she's anonymous, and yet her affection and love overflows towards Jesus. And then Judas, the betrayer, uh, is sort of the antithesis of that. Uh, so this is another one of Mark's sandwiches. What's ironic about this story is that you have the... the, the um, the guards sort of yelling at Jesus um, and, and telling him to prophesy. He's sort of being challenged, and yet he's being called a false prophet. And yet as this is happening, the prophecy that he's given about Peter is literally unfolding. Right? So Mark, he's a great storyteller, a great writer. Uh, last week we talked about how Jesus was and is um, a companion, a friend, uh, in the sense that he's suffered what we suffer. He's walked the path that we walk. He and then he, he leads the way and says, follow in this direction. He's gone before us, as it will. Which, in this passage, brings into sharp focus Jesus' experience with what we'll call the justice system. Uh, and, and a first observation I want to make from this story is this. Uh, this, verse 53, is the beginning of Jesus' trial. So, in the Gospels, the whole thing, right, are leading up to this moment that we are now in as the church in our calendar year, where we're thinking about... Uh, what will be the, 
the trial, the, cru- the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the whole story is leading to this moment. And verse 53 in Mark's gospel is the beginning of what we call the trial of Jesus proper. Now, of course, we know, if you know the story, uh, that this really wasn't much of a trial at all. Uh, it was the confirmation of pre-existing biases, right, of the religious elite and the leaders of Jerusalem and, and Israel until the desired outcome that they wanted came to be. It, was, um, it took place at night, which was against the rules, uh, sort of descriptive of the nefarious nature of what's happening, and also symbolic of the metaphors that Mark is working with. These things are happening in the dark, the spiritually unable to see these folks, working in the shadows of night. Jesus has kind of bounced back and forth between different authorities, between Pilate and the Sanhedrin and a number of folks. Uh, and notice even how the crowd gets sort of brought into this. The crowd is sort of stirred up and uh, intentionally stirred up until they give Pilate the answer that the religious leaders are looking for. In, according to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin, which is this group of people that are bringing Jesus uh, to the high priest, there needs to be two corroborating sources in order to convict someone of, of, a, of a charge. And in, notice in Mark's introduction, there's all these things that are being leveled at Jesus, but not two of them are the same. And it's not until the high priest asks Jesus a question that Jesus responds and answers the question, but then goes further, which puts the high priest kind of over the edge. One thing I want to notice in this passage, as a mostly white audience this morning, for whom I'm going to assume the justice system tends to more often than not, work for us. Jesus is falsely accused of crimes he did not commit. Ultimately found guilty for what was in fact not a crime, because it was true. Reuben Carter, Curtis Flowers, Walter McMillan, Corey Wise, Kevin Richardson, Anton McRae, Yusef Salam, Raymond Santana, Carlos de Luna. I could keep going. These are names of men, bodies of color, that in our country were charged and found guilty of crimes they did not commit. Many of them died at the hands of the state, only to be exonerated after death. I'll speak for myself for just a moment. As I sat with this passage this week and the implications of it, as a white man who's been on the receiving end of many privileges in my life, I typically, I trust the justice system to get it right. And I trust that, um, that I don't need to fear it. That I don't, I don't need to be afraid of it. Because it's worked for me. I think it's important to note that this is not and has not been the experience of so many people around the world. Whether it's corrupt politicians or dictators or tyrants or systemic racism. Many people in the world don't have my experience with the justice system. Rather, they have an experience that resembles Jesus' experience with the justice system. Where it's rigged, it's tilted towards power. It protects particular interests at the cost of, or with the poor bearing the weight and the cost of it. What happens to Jesus is not justice. It's not a trial. It's a kangaroo court. It's rigged. 
And it's an all-too-familiar process that highlights the power of the rich and the elite, and in this case, the religious. So why do I bring all this up? I want to suggest that it highlights the importance of having different perspectives when we read the text. Having different genders, different skin colors, different socioeconomic statuses, different gen orientations in the room when we read the Bible together. Like when a group of men read the resurrection story, it's easy for us to miss the fact that it's women who are the first witnesses of the resurrection. That it's women who are the first heralds of the story. Which, by the way, is, is one of the reasons why many people argue that the gospel in this story that's being told is in fact true. Because the last thing you would do if you wanted it to remain true in the world was to let women tell the story in the ancient world. So when a group of men read the text, it's easy for us to miss that because, well, we're not women, right? When a group of uh, straight cisgendered people read the story of Philip in Acts, it's easy for us to miss the fact, or we may focus on the baptism or the conversion, but it's easy for us to miss that, in fact, this is an African black sexual minority, Philip the Ethiopian eunuch, right? So when we read the scripture, who's in the room matters. Now, of course, we can't read the Bible with every perspective in the room all the time, but I want to encourage you to at least ask the question, who informs your perspective? I remember when I was reading Daniel Hill's book, White Awake. We read it as a staff. And one of the exercises in this book was he, he encouraged you, just like imagine or even look at, you know, my books are all up there on my shelf in, in my library, uh, in my office. And he said, just go through your books, go through your CDs, if you still listen to those, or your records, or look at your MP3s on your phone, um, Think about the podcasts in your feed and just look at who's influencing your perspective. And just like notice how many of the people, the books on that shelf are similar to you. And how many of them are different than you? If you're a man, how many of those books are women offering their perspective? Or if you're white, how many people of color are offering perspective into your view of life? So when we read the Bible and you read a story like this, it's easy to miss the fact that Jesus is like underneath the thumb of a corrupt justice system. And he doesn't get a fair trial. He doesn't get justice. So I thought, well, who better to ask than people who are incarcerated? So one of my friends, Lisa Adams, works with men who are incarcerated, Alina Lakes. And I said, Lisa, would you just ask some of your men, like, what they think when they read this passage. And a couple of them actually wrote back to me. This is what one of, here's his letter right here. Uh, you can't read that, but just so you know, it's real. He said, Mark 14, 53 to 63. In this story, I see injustice in action. The religious leaders were so eager to condemn Jesus that they had to hold their own grand jury proceedings in the dark of night. To make matters worse, these proceedings were against Jewish law, a law they didn't seem to know much about and easily ignored. When those in power want someone convicted, there is little anyone can do about it. Especially for those who are poor and have no means to hire their own counsel. In this instance, the justice system was clearly corrupt. It didn't matter what Jesus said because they already decided his fate prior to the proceedings. 
This is how our justice system works sometimes. It can be very unjust, even in the face of obvious truth. I want to start this morning by reminding us that it's important who's in the room when we read the text. And what we see or don't see is often connected to the perspectives that are around us and that we're listening to. So when we read a story about Jesus in a justice system that doesn't work and that doesn't provide justice, but is in fact rigged and works against the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized, we might want to consider like whose voice should be in the room or could be in the room when we're reading it. So can we hear the stories from someone else's perspective other than our own? Another way to say it. A second observation comes in the form of a question, which is who killed Jesus? Uh, one of the fascinating lines of thinking in biblical study throughout history is like this question, who killed Jesus? Like, Was it the politicians? Was it the religious? And the, or was it the Jews? Which has led to terrible anti-Semitism in the world. Uh, was it Judas the betrayer? Was it the disciples who deserted him? Was it the Romans, the mob, the crowd, Pilate, or somebody else? Who killed Jesus? And there's all these books and, and people who've written about it. One commentator writes this. Uh, Daniel Garland is his name. He says, Jesus was killed by self-serving religious leaders in control of the temple who were intent on preserving their power. He goes on to say, even institutions dedicated to God can become taken over by evil and try to thwart God's will rather than serving the agent, as agents of God's will. Jesus confronted a corrupt institution and threatened its existence. What happened next shouldn't surprise us. Confront them today and see what happens. I don't disagree with much of what has just been said, but that's one guy's perspective. But that whole project, who killed Jesus, assumes there's one answer, right? Who, we go to the Bible and we're like, who did it? And, and we, we sort of go off on this quest to find the answer to that question. So we let certain people off the hook and we hold others accountable. Albert Schweitzer, who's a, a Jewish theologian, says, whoever is conscious of his own negligence and obedience, of his own failure to love, of the lethargy of his own heart in the midst of the demands of everyday life cannot escape from his responsibility before God for Jesus' death by fixing the blame on someone, some other person. When we look at the Bible this way and we, look, we go for it to mine it for the answer to a question, I think we, well, Krista Tippett says, uh, questions beget answers of their kind. But what if the scripture is doing something different? What if that's not the intention of the Bible, to give you an answer to a question? What if this book is rather a mirror that we hold up to ourselves, and as we read it, it reads us? It informs and shapes you and I. We come under the wisdom of this divine word. And so what if when we read an account like this, the trial and the death and the, res uh, the, the conviction and death of Jesus, rather than asking who killed Jesus, we ask, in what ways have I become the crafty religious person? who plays the game to appease guilt or manipulate? In what ways have I been or become a person like Judas who betrays? In what ways have I been or become a person like Peter who breaks promises? In what ways have I been or become a false witness or a crafty politician, wishy-washy, flaky? In what ways have I been or become mind a member of the mindless crowd where I just go along to get along? Maybe in these moments when we read this, we, we, sh we realize Jesus isn't on trial, but in fact, as the mirror 
points back, we are to ask questions about ourselves. Which leads me to a third observation, and that is, we find in this passage a path that only Jesus can walk. Like, taken with Peter's about-to-be denial of Jesus, this is a stark and sobering moment. Betrayed by a friend, deserted by ten, about to be denied by his closest, Jesus stands alone in the courtroom of public appeal in the middle of the night. Even amidst all the ways God has invited humanity to participate in this story, in this moment we recognize that this is a path that only Jesus can walk. And we find the answer to this question that Pilate asks. He says, you know, accusations are flying around. Did you do this? Did you do that? Rebuild the temple, this, that, and the other thing. And Jesus doesn't say anything. Pilate's like, are you going to answer the questions? And he stays silent. And then he says, are you the Messiah? And that's when Jesus pipes in. And he not only answers that question, but he goes further. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. And... I am the Messiah, Messiah being the, the Hebrew word for the anointed one, like what would only happen to a king when you pour oil on their head, or Aaron, the high priest, that's the first use of, of this word anointing in scripture, when the high priest is set apart, he says, yes, I'm the anointed one, and he quotes Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, right, uh, which Psalm 110 speaks of the enemies of God becoming the footstool, uh, this uh, and then Daniel chapter 7, speaking of like the divine judgment and sharing the very authority of the throne upon which God sits. And the high priest goes nuts because, of course, Jesus has said, I am the Messiah and God. Jesus knows, Mark knows, and Mark invites us to know that Jesus is very clearly identified as the only one who can walk this road. In the stories of the story of the scriptures, Israel was invited to walk a road that led to blessing, blessed to be a blessing, right? Walk this road of sacrificial love for the nations. And Jesus says, I'll walk it to completion in your, in your inability to do so. Moses was called to be a liberator, right? A leader of an exodus from slavery and bondage. Jesus is now identified by Mark and invited to, for us to see as the only one who can lead this new exodus from slavery and bondage. The path that must be walked, which you and I cannot walk and fail to walk every day. I don't, I don't, probably, I don't have to help you or remind you that you fail to love sacrificially every day, right? If we're like living our lives and the point of being a human is not to serve ourselves, but actually to love our neighbor as ourselves, I don't have to stand up here and bang you over the head with a two-by-four to remind you of the fact that you don't do that every day, right? Can we just all raise our hands and say like, we're guilty. We do that, right? We choose ourselves instead of our neighbor as ourselves because we're selfish and because we think that, you know, it's a zero-sum game and i got to get mine while I can. Jesus stands here and says, only I can walk this road. Where sacrificial love is chosen, even in the midst of, in the face of, enemies who persecute and who eventually kill him. Which leads me to one final observation. In this passage, we see Foolishness and folly in the wisdom of God. By the end of this scene, Jesus is defenseless. He's mocked, he's spit on, he's about to be naked and hung on a cross. Powerless, defenseless, like humiliated. And Mark has it all right here. This stark contrast between folly and wisdom, power and weakness. And the tables get flipped. So what will you choose to believe? 
The world that the disciples lived in, that Jesus lived in, was a world that was full of power structures and hierarchies where people um, gained power and, and had access to power because they pushed other people down. They took advantage of the weak. They, the number one priority was the preservation of self at cost to others. It's a world very unlike ours today. It was cutthroat, right? And it was selling a bill of goods like this is how the game is played. And according to that game, in this passage, Jesus is the loser. He's the fool. And yet, another proclamation is being made of another world, another way of seeing the world. A different kind of economy, where power doesn't look like that, but rather it looks very different. One that says, love for neighbor expressed through self-sacrifice will be the only thing that lasts in the world to come. So the wisdom of this world, which says, up and to the right looks like get yours while you can. If you need to step on somebody on the way, go for it, because it's a zero-sum game. The wisdom of the world is called out as folly. The pursuit of this age is a fool's errand, so don't conform to it, Paul says. And the foolishness of the kingdom is actually, turns out to be, elevated as the wisdom of God. The, and the closest to God, those who are closest to God, the religious, they don't see it. So the question for you and I this morning as we read a passage like this is, do you see it? We live in a world that is not much different than the one Jesus lived in 2,000 years ago. We're power and how to make your way in it. We're being asked and invited to follow the same kinds of wisdom, as it were. And you have a choice every day. There are two stories being told, two narratives, two offerings. One that's saying, this is wisdom, this is the way to go, this is how you make it, this is what success looks like, this is what power looks like, and this is how you get it. And another narrative, a counter-narrative, that's saying, actually, that's not true, that's not wise, that's foolish, that leads to death, and no one wins that way in the end. Rather, wisdom actually looks like the laying down of one's life, sacrifice of self, even for my enemy, even if it costs me my life, will lead, to, will lead to love, is the only fruit that will last in the world to come. And in this world, for that matter. The question is, do you believe that? It's the same question Jesus stands, hangs from a cross and asks us to consider. And I want to invite you to consider it today. Do you believe it? And will you give your life to it? Pray with me, if you will. God, this morning, we um, hear this word from a story written 2,000 years ago about this person who offers a different way forward, a different kind of human experience, a different kind of world, one that is has an economy that doesn't make sense in the world and the economy that we live in. And so we're met with a question and a challenge to decide how we're going to live our lives and what things we're going to give ourselves to, what principles and ideas we're going to allow to shape us and form us. And so I pray that 
in the next few moments of silence, that by your Spirit's presence in our midst, that you would remind us of what's true and good and beautiful. That you would like, sear into our hearts and our minds, plant deep in our souls the seeds that are true and good and beautiful. And that they would grow in us. So Holy Spirit, do your work, I pray. This morning as we close, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. And so um, every week we come to this table as a, a reminder, a part of liturgy, a ritual, a habit. Because really, um, it doesn't matter if I, what I say is you know, worth taking home or not. Um, that's my sort of saving grace every week that we are reminded of this story. Uh, and so in just a moment, I'll invite you to the Eucharist and uh, we'll invite you to come down the side aisles. There is red wine and there's white grape juice there. And so we'd invite you to take a piece of that bread um, and dip it in the cup and know that the body of Christ has been broken for you and the blood of Christ has been shed for you. A story that continues and repeats itself and that you're invited into uh, each and every moment. Um, so, Come and receive the Lord's table. To the church gathered this morning, uh, I find that a lot of the work of the pastor is just to remind you of what a couple of fundamental truths. The first of which is you are known and loved by the divine. We see it in baptism. You've always been claimed by God. And we live in a world that is not always what it should be or could be, and that there are things in it that are broken. Uh, we live between the resurrection and the coming again, the kingdom of God. And so in the meantime, we're to wrestle with, like, what's the best way to do that? There's a lot of different options out there. This story is one that says Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one who does it best and invites you to, do, to follow. Uh, so... Hopefully you leave this morning with some things to think about, that you're reminded of some things that I think are very true, and that you are compelled to live and follow the way of Jesus in the world, to be good news, to be Eucharist, wherever you're found. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Go in peace, friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.